Cars FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with retired battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Miller. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, Patriots. And tonight is Tuesday, January 9th in the year 2024. Patriots, tonight we have with us Brad Miller, who is was the, the battalion commander for 101st Airborne that was forced out of the military, a, also a West Point graduate, because he refused to take the shot. And with that, he is a strong voice and the leader in, in speaking this whole message of the Declaration of Military Accountability. It's a very important interview tonight to really hear the depth of what, he's, what this whole thing is about. He's an incredible voice. I'm really very, very honored to have him on board. So before we get going very quickly, just want to remind you that we are in a time when there's a lot of disparity and uncertainty in our economic environment. You need to do everything you can to protect your environment and your retirement savings. These people are trying to crash the economy, move us over to a digital currency, and ultimately leverage the paper currency and steal your retirement income. So make sure you get yourself backed with precious metals. Now we have Birch Gold. They are a great organization. They're going to help you if you choose to use them transition your retirement savings into a gold-backed or silver-backed IRA. Precious metals is their thing. So give them a call. And the way you do that is you text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. Again, BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. And you're going to get a free info packet. Get that, read through that, and then get informed. Give them a call. Talk to them about any existing 401k or IRA you have. If you have an existing 401k or IRA, they will transition that over at no cost to you. They will help you set up these things. They have great information on gold and silver and precious metals. It's a great source. They've been with us now for about a year and a half. A great company, great group of people. So again, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. That's Birch Gold. You'll get your free info packet. Read through that and then begin the process as soon as you can. In fact, do it today. It's a great thing. All right, Patriots, Brad Miller. He's a great man. We had him at Bards Fest. If you didn't, if you weren't there and you saw it online, you would also know him. He's becoming a significant voice right now in the nation. Uh, this is a former lieutenant colonel of the 101st Airborne, and this was a man who went through West Point. And in the process of his career, he was given, which is quite, quite literally, one of the most prestigious positions in the entire army, which is to be a battalion commander for the 101st Airborne. 101st is known for their fights in Bastogne. They've had many, they have a huge legacy of, of warfare. And in the military culture, they are one of the most honored places to be a commander of. Now, Brad Miller refused to take the vax. And in so doing, they were they basically forced him out of the, his command. And there he stepped from that point into resigning his commission. A very significant deal because as a West Point graduate, commissions are given for life. So he had his career set until he did the right thing and lawful thing and saw what was going on and refused to comply. 
Brad has been the instrumental voice and organizer, along with Commander Rob Green, who was on the other night, in, a, in building this letter, the Declaration of Military Accountability. This is a fantastic statement that, I, as you know, I've been very honored to sign on to that letter with the 231 signatories that is now calling for accountability within our senior rank and file, which is the flag officers, basically one star and above. And that is all the one star, two star, three star, four stars, all of which did, did nothing to prevent this injection from being forced on the military with the illegal mandate that was put in place. Brad's been an open spokesman against it, and now we are, or he is, leads the or, organized group and to mobilize the voices of America to stand up for this, to reset our military in a profound way. Now, before we get going here, I want to play a short piece. This comes today from Secretary Pete uh, I, I think it's Peter Ducey. I, Peter Ducey is the, is the reporter. I just want you to hear this from the press secretary. And just to hear this sense of how confused and messed up the current system is in the Pentagon and the Biden administration. And it relates directly to what this letter is about, which is accountability. Take a listen. Why should we believe anything that this administration tells us about anything ever again? I think we all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about uh, the um, uh, the challenge to, to, to credibility by what, uh, what has transpired here and by what and by how how was for them to be fully transparent with the American people. I think we all recognize that. And, and wait, wait, not just give me a second. What the fuck? No, coming here, but, but we all recognize that this didn't unfold the way it should have on so many levels, not just the notification process up the chain of command, but the transparency issue. We all recognize that. And I think we all want to make sure we learn from that. I, uh, it's up to you and your colleagues and it's up to the American people to determine, you know, how much they're going uh, to ascribe what happened here to our credibility and everything. That's right. but in I'm going to stop right there because I think if you just took that right now, this is obviously speaking of defense secretary Austin and his unexpected trip apparently to the hospital or prostate something or other. But all of this was about a blunder in accountability to the American people. And really what is being said here is it's up to us, which is exactly what this letter is about. It is up to us as we the people to stand up and start making it clear that we're not going to accept this leadership that does not have any accountability. And therefore we have we have this in a place now where we're ready to take a step forward. So we're going to bring in Brad Miller here. Brad, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on, Scott? First what's and foremost, thanks so much for having me on. And um really proud to be here with you tonight. You've done such a great job, uh, not just when I've been on your show before, but also with the recent interviews you've done with other signatories of the document. And I also want to thank you for putting your name on it as well. Well, thank you, Brad. It's a really big, big honor. And this is a big fight. And I think that's... Uh, something we're seeing how important it is for the America as a whole to reset our military. Yeah, I agree. You know, we, and, and this is, this is certainly not new to you and um, you've got a very informed audience. They certainly know what's going on in our country, but I will tell you that we have caught a lot of steam. I mean, I, I've kind of joked with some of my friends and even on some of the other interviews that I've done where I've said, you know, 2024 has been a very crazy year and we're only, you know, just over a weekend. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is absolutely true. By the way, this is like day nine, right? It's just literally, so right. it's going that fast. 
Brad, let's get into some of the meat of this. I want to start a little bit with the context, and I gave him a, and I gave everybody a bit of a briefing before we began. But your particular story, I want to go over that at least as a as a summary to kind of get a context. As a hundred first airborne battalion commander, it was a prestigious position in the military, and you were forced out. So let's talk a little bit about that first. Yeah. So, um, so I graduated from West Point in two thousand three. So I went, you know, through my career served a couple of different places, you know, been to Afghanistan a couple of times, spent three years in South Korea, spent a year in Honduras. So I'd been a lot of places. I'd done a lot of things. I had a very unique career. In the summer of 2021, I was a lieutenant colonel and I took command of a battalion. It was a combat engineer battalion in third brigade of the 101st Airborne Division. You talked a little bit about kind of the, the storied legacy the 101st has. And I will tell you, and this is significant to the story. I'm not just tooting my own horn, but um, the particular battalion that I took command of was actually my number one choice to take command of. So when I had to put in my preference list for where I wanted to command, uh, that particular battalion, what I listed at the top of my list of about 80 battalions that I was uh, considered to be eligible to command. So of about 80, the one at the very top of my list was the one that I ended up being selected to command. So my point is, is that I felt very fortunate to uh, to get my number one pick. I wanted to command in the 101st, and I wanted to command more specifically within the uh, the 3rd Brigade, which is known as the Rockassans and also has its own, its own history. So I, I took command in June of 2021. And if we remember our timeline, this would have been about two and a half months prior to the um, the mandate, the the mandate went into effect on August 24, 2021. Uh, I, of course, refused to comply. This was no secret to my supervisors. I had told my direct supervisor, who would be the brigade commander, a colonel, and my supervisor two levels up, which would be the division commander, a two-star general. I had told both of them clearly and unequivocally that I was not going to take the shot. Therefore, when I refused, it was not a surprise to them. In late October, I was uh, formally relieved of command. Several months later, once it was very clear that the military was not going to walk this back, and it was also very clear that this was undoubtedly unlawful, at least in my mind at the time, that's when I decided, well, I, I felt like I'd been kind of um, been kind of backed into a corner, and I felt like I was getting pulled in two different directions. On the one hand, I felt the the weight of the oath that I took to the Constitution that I've always taken very seriously and continue to take very seriously to this day and the the loyalty that I feel as an American to my country. And on the other hand, kind of the loyalty to the team, if you will, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. But in this case, a team that seemed to be moving the military an institution that I consider to be beloved on my part, but they were moving it into the wrong direction. And I just felt like, you know what, for me to actually serve my country and make good on my oath, I'm, I actually find myself in a situation as paradoxical as it may seem in which I'm going to have to take off the uniform in order to continue to make good on my oath to the constitution and fulfill my own loyalties to my country. So I did so. And uh, I don't regret that decision. Um, it was a sacrifice, and I do feel that I am continuing to serve my country by standing shoulder to shoulder with some of these just just incredible people, whether it's Rob Green or, uh, you know, Carolyn Rocco or Doc Pete Chambers, yourself. I mean, there are just numerous others, but just 
these fantastic, these fantastic Patriots that when I think about them, I think about them. If you know, if you want to think back to the old mythological figure of Atlas who carries like the globe on his shoulders, this is how I feel about people like, you know, Rob Green or, or Pete Chambers or these other individuals where you've got maybe not one individual, but you have a tiny, 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 minuscule group of individuals who are carrying the entire DOD on their back because they're the ones who are being the true leaders that are trying to move this entire institution of several million people into the right direction against the pull of its own senior officials in an opposite direction. Brad, let's start with the oath a little bit. I'd like you to talk to what the oath is to you and what the real meaning of it is, because you said something very important here. You had to take off your uniform in, a, in order to uphold your oath. Fantastic statement. Yeah. So, and, and I understand that that's why, you know, I mentioned that that is going to sound paradoxical to people. And I understand that. And if we lived in a functioning republic, then let me, let me start by saying it's maybe going in a slightly different direction. Then I'll explain what I mean. Um, if you serve in the military and you're wearing your uniform for whatever reason, you walk through an airport, you, all these people are going to stop you and they're going to say, you know, thank you for your service, which, which I enjoy. I understand why people, you know, do that. Um, and I appreciate that people have that respect for military service members because there's this belief in America that if you serve in the military, you are serving your country. And that may be your intent. There's a reality there, though, that you actually serve your government because that's who's going to be passing down the orders that you're going to have to follow. And you're actually only serving the country in as much as the government and your senior leaders in the military are serving the country. And so that's where I felt like I was kind of getting pulled in two different directions where I know my oath. My oath is to the Constitution. You know, when you're a military officer, you take an oath to the Constitution, which means it is not directed towards any one person. It is to the Constitution. And, and as Americans, we do have a particular feeling of fealty towards the Constitution. We know that we live in a unique country. We know that we have unique principles upon which our republic was founded, and that is enshrined in the military culture. And so if the leaders of the military start to go askew from that Constitution, then they have actually moved out of line. And so I felt like I, I still feel, e even now, not being in uniform, I still feel that I owe my, or that I, I still have loyalty towards that, that constitution that I have maintained an oath to, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say the oath never expires. And for me, that is very real. And so for me, I feel that, well, okay. I was put into a position where, um, I have nothing against the institution of the military. I am very proud to be a West pointer. I am very proud to be an army officer, but I would tell you that the same traits, the same personal attributes, whatever they may have been, that led me to West Point, led me through West Point, and led me into the Army and through the Army for 19 years are also the same traits and qualities that led me to resign before I completed a full career. You know, and I'm and I'm very proud. Sometimes I consider myself to be happily resigned. I will kind of introduce myself in that way when people ask about my career because I'm very proud of the fact that 
um, when it really came down to it, if, if my entire career were to be summed up in one decision, it would be that decision. And, and let me just take that one step further. You know, Scott, I'm, I'm sure that this will make sense to you and will make sense to many of your listeners, particularly the, uh, the men out there. Many young men, they grow up and they, this, this is just human nature, particularly for men, but they grow up and they aspire to greatness. It's just part of being a man, particularly a young man. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that, you know, why are men drawn to risks or why do they look for challenges or why do they sometimes participate in daredevil activities or whatever, but they, they want to challenge themselves. They, they want to prove to themselves that they are worthy of manhood or, you know, whatever. And that will lead many people to go into the military. Now, yeah, sure, there may be patriotism and they want to serve their country, but they're also looking for challenges. When you take a young man who has those types of ideals, like I did, I mean, I'm very much, you know, this is, I mean, I, I was this young man, you know, you picture your, uh, you picture glorious battle, you know, and, and that can be kind of an immature thought. But again, we're talking about the thoughts of young men, but you think that you're going to achieve glory and you're going to prove your manhood in some distant foreign land in battle. But what happens if that crucial moment doesn't necessarily occur in a firefight on some distant land? Now, that doesn't mean that those firefights on distant lands don't occur. But what if that pinnacle moment that is going to define your career just doesn't happen to be on some faraway hilltop, but happens to be back at home? And that those and that that decision has to do with refusing the tyrannical grasp that your own leaders are trying to place around you. What if that pinnacle decision that you find yourself in that's going to define your whole career is not a tactical decision or a decision where you were even necessarily in acute physical danger? But what if that decision turns out to be a moral one that defines your entire career? And I don't think that many people in the military were prepared for that. They weren't prepared for that kind of single paramount decision to necessarily be a moral one rather than something that we more closely identify with battle per se, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. This is a really interesting war, and I'll use that term just intentionally, for you to step into because you're coming from a kinetic framework meaning using lethal action and using physical instruments of war. And you stepped in and transitioned into what we call fifth generation warfare, which is usually literally using informational space to affect the belief, the direction, and even the will of people. And you've, you've managed to transition that from my observation extremely well. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I also use the term, um, that I began using a couple of months ago. I might have even mentioned it at Bard's Fest, but I can't remember. But um, deep war. So we, you mentioned kinetic war. So we're all very familiar with, you know, you watch war movies or whatever, and you think, oh, war, war causes harm to the physical body. And yes, of course, that's true. And then you think, well, you can go a little bit deeper and you can think about, um, you know, psychological operations, of course. But you can go deeper. Well, what about you know, the kind of the deepest you can go where you're actually affecting, you know, the spirit of individuals and, you know, people like you, Scott, you, you certainly understand what 
spiritual war is and techniques of spiritual warfare. And what I would say, and one thing that we have to understand is, first of all, we are in a spiritual war, which in my mind, far eclipses and transcends even just a psychological war. It goes beyond that. Or in my parlance, it's deeper than that. This deep war is all around us and it's inside of us. And what we need to understand is that when we use words like spiritual war or spiritual warfare, that is not a metaphor. It is a real war. Now, it may not be, there may not be explosions. There may not be bullets. That does not make it any less real. And in that regard, it's not a metaphor and it's not an analogy. It's a very real phenomenon. So what does this mean? You know, there's a, there's a term that I really like that the, um, it came originally from the Germans, but, um, and, and I don't speak German. So if there's anybody out there who has better pronunciation in German than me, then they're going to, they're going to laugh at me. But the German term is Welten, Weltanschauungskrieg which would be translated as worldview warfare. And I really like that term because I think it goes further than just psychological warfare or psychological operations, because you just mentioned beliefs and beliefs are critical. And what we have to understand is we are fighting against an enemy that absolutely is going to attack your beliefs and not just your beliefs about you know a political party or candidates or this idea or that idea, but something more fundamental than that to include even truth itself. And we are seeing that it's, it's, it's all around us. And I think that if we are unprepared for that, then we will not recognize the techniques or the onslaughts that will be used against us in this deepest of all wars. Extremely, excuse me, extremely well said, extremely well said, Brad. You, there's a piece in all of this. When we start to look at our senior officers, our flag officers, there's a post that you put up the other day, ask, asking for a name of anybody, one star and above, who resisted and stood up against this illegal order for the COVID injection, the COVID-19 injection. And your summation, which I've done my own research, and just I think we come to the same piece, is I haven't heard of one, not one, not one flag officer. That gets into moral courage. And what's amazing to me is when we look at Commander Rob Green, which I say this in a, in, not in an insulting way, but this is a, a Navy logistics officer that is not in the front and point of the spear. And yet he is, he led much of this effort as from you and your perspective, I would expect many from your, from your background in the infantry and in the, you in, in the fighting element of the, the warfighter to be able to step in and say, okay, we're going to stand up for what's right. But what's amazing is we're seeing this very eclectic group, which in the 231, that is standing up with moral courage, and yet we're lacking pretty much universally any sort of moral courage in our flag flag officers. What's your thought about this? Yeah, so this puts us in a very dire position if we're if we're being honest. Now, let me give a little bit of good news too, because um, I'm quick to give the bad news, and I'm I'm trying kind of one of the discussions that I have you know, with myself sometimes is make sure people understand there is some good news too. So um, going back to our, our declaration of military accountability, and, and again, people can find that at militaryaccountability.com, and we encourage people to go find that and find the petition associated with the declaration, and, and please uh, sign that and share that all around. But that declaration, which, you know, Rob Green was kind of the, had the mental energy behind uh, that idea 
putting that on paper framed very much, I would say, um, framed very much by two overarching principles. One, the historical link to the founding period, particularly the Declaration of Independence, and the other, his own personal faith. And, and you know that he's um, he is certainly a man of faith. And that when you read that document, it's only one page, when you read that document, you are certainly reading the way in which Rob is drawing links to his faith and to you know the founding period and that's kind of how he's framed the entire document and therefore what it is that we're trying to do. So when I look at the connections that Rob is trying to draw, and then uh, Pete, Pete Chambers made a comment the other day, and, and he's not the only one to, to draw these, these, uh, these parallels. And, 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 I, and I almost hate to do this because I'm in this group and, and, and I feel like I'm the outlier, probably the one that doesn't, you know, add up. But when I think about Rob Green, I think about, or, you know, Pete Chambers or yourself or you know, some of these other incredible people, I think about people who would fit in with, you know, George Washington, with Thomas Jefferson. I mean, I feel like these individuals could sit in the tavern and have these discussions and be understood and feel that they, to some degree, were among peers. I do not feel that. I, I do not feel that with any of our general officers or flag officers. I do not feel that they could sit next to, you know, the grandeur of a George Washington or or one of these other figures. They would seem they would seem small. And maybe we all would. But these individuals that purport to. uh you know, to lead us from the Pentagon, you know, I, I said, you know, they put on a costume every day and go pretend to quote unquote lead. I use that term very loosely from the Pentagon. But if they were to try and sit next to George Washington, they would, they would seem small. They would just, and I, and I, I mean, I probably would too, but, but compared to a Rob Green that I think, you know, fits in much more easily with that group. And, and I, I don't know that I'm being hyperbolic when I say that, because um, to some degree, what we are seeing right now is comparable to to the founding period. Maybe not quite as existential, but it is comparable. And um, there's just no comparison between, you know, a, a Pete Chambers and then, you know, Lloyd Austin. Or, or any of the others up there of that ilk, whether they're still in uniform or, or not in uniform. There's just no comparison. I'm in full agreement with you. I mean, I, I honestly feel that our last great general, which was Scott Miller, Scotty Miller, when they tried to pin all of Afghanistan on, he resigned, and I do not blame him whatsoever. I think that he was one of our, probably one of our, the last great general we had, having worked under him. And I think what we're seeing here is the is really where the strength of the military is. It's really interesting. We go to World War II, which obviously 101st has a massive legacy. I didn't realize you were Rakasans, which is even for those that don't understand Rakasan, it's like the it's the cream of the cream when it comes to 101st and the legacy. You're also the main effort into Operation Anaconda in, in Afghanistan. Um, so the 101st and that legacy, and you're coming from that where. At that time, and there's a scene in Saving Private Ryan that I think depicts this really well, when it's the captain that comes off of Normandy Beach, and he's speaking to the full bird colonel. 
And there's this incredible dialogue going on with a, what is at that point, he's, he's a, he's there, a, a full bird 06 speaking to the field captain and literally where we get that idea of a battle captain. And he's taking that information directly from the captain and integrated it into what he's going to speak of towards strategy. And there's a complete connection there. When we look at what's happened now, that captain of this day is the lieutenant colonel class, which is an interesting rank because it has been not been a notorious rank for strength, power, and voice in the military. It's been overshadowed by the 06, the colonels. But yet you represent this new class of leadership and that is literally, and Pete's in the same place, and others that are speaking up saying, we are you're keeping your eye on the soldier and your eye on the institution at the same time. Talk a little bit about that because you haven't lost, you've never in your in your discussions, nor has Pete or anybody else, lost the importance of the soldier. And at the same time, you're looking up at the strategic view of our military and you're demanding, not just asking, but demanding accountability for their role in the senior ranks of where is your accountability to the soldier into this military, into the nation? Great question. So, and, and that's a, a great kind of historical frame when you think about that that scene that you used to kind of draw an analogy to where we are now with the lieutenant colonels. So here's something that's kind of interesting. So battalion command, so that's the position that I held. Um, and, and for those who may not be familiar with the military, what does that mean? Let me just give kind of a numerical context. So I had about 700 soldiers in my battalion that I was the commander of. 550 would have been under my direct command. There's kind of another 150 kind of under a more administrative command that I wouldn't have had direct control over. Anyway, so the year that I went into command, so, so my year group that was being looked at when we were competing for command, the then chief of staff of the army, this would have been uh, General McConville, now retired. He and, and whatever we want to think of him because of the because of the whole COVID. But anyway, but one of the things that he did was he said, we got to look at the way that we are selecting battalion commanders because battalion commanders, which again, lieutenant colonels, that is a very critical space within our command structure in the army. Why? It is the first command billet that is centrally selected. So the the command before that that you take when you're a captain, company command. That's selected by the brigade commander two levels above, but battalion commanders are centrally selected by the army itself. So what General McConville did was he said, that is a critical position. It's centrally selected by the army, but it's also, it's the last level at command where you can personally know all or at least most of your soldiers. So think about me, I would have had 550 soldiers that I would have command of on a daily basis. Once you've been in command for a couple of months, you can know 550 soldiers. Now, you're not going to know every intimate detail about every single one, but you will recognize even privates and you'll know their names. You will know what company they're in and, you know, you you may even know exactly what their jobs are, et cetera. You can still do that with a couple hundred soldiers. A brigade commander, which would be my next higher boss when I was a battalion commander, you know, the brigade was 4,200 soldiers. That is no longer possible. So what what General McConville was saying was that battalion command position is critical because you're senior enough that you're in command of a, a relatively good sized organization. You're centrally selected to get into the position, but you're not so high up yet 
that you are removed from the day-to-day interactions with your rank and file soldier, you know, in the army, that would be your, your privates. And so he said, we've got to be smarter about the selection process for these people. that are going to go into these critical command billets. So they set up what they kind of referred to with the analogy of the NFL combine. They kind of set up this, uh, this four day selection process. I was actually stationed in Korea. I had to go from, I had to fly from Korea all the way to Fort Knox, Kentucky to participate in this four day selection process as part of the, um, the overall, uh, uh, you know, process for competing for battalion command. So you would go to this four day assessment and you go through all these, uh, you know, these tests, et cetera, um, in order to be selected. So I was happy. So this was a new process and I was happy that I was part of the first year group that was going to have to undergo that new process to get into battalion command, because it used to be hard to get selected for battalion command before, but now it was going to even be harder and they were being more selective. You know, I would say taking greater scrutiny in ensuring they put the proper people into these positions. So then when I came out on the the other side of that and I was selected for command and I was selected, you know, high enough that I was able to get my number one choice for battalion, I, I, I felt very fortunate. I felt very fortunate. I felt, you know, very proud of myself. But you look back on that a couple of years later and I have to ask myself, hey, it's great that you put this new process in. And I don't necessarily disagree with what I had to do in order to get selected as a battalion commander. I think everything that I did during that four-day selection and everything else I had to do to submit my packet to get selected, those were all good things. But we got to take a deeper look at at where we are. We got to take a deeper look at the way that we are selecting our officers for commanders and, 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 um, and our officer education system and also the the enlisted education system, because we've got some real deficiencies when it comes to how to make moral, ethical, or uh, legally sound decisions or decisions that are constitutionally grounded. So what has happened to our professional education system at various benchmarks along the way through either an officer career path or an enlisted career path that we have so many leaders that can make such egregious decisions. And yet there appears to be almost no self-correcting mechanism when it comes to senior officers kind of acting as, as a check on other senior officers to kind of put it that way. Makes perfect sense. And it's disturbing. This letter gets to the core of that. And I think that it was, we've seen with the response, even with the, the cyber efforts that were going on to take it off the web, aggressive ones, after it was first released. And I think you released it at 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. on the 1st of January. This is a very significant statement to the military. And I'd like to get into this a little bit because the military as a whole, the organization, which includes the military industrial complex and 17 intelligence agencies, that apparatus, I think the senior leadership takes for granted that the soldiers will be obedient and not question what they do. That goes into a lot of the retraining that's gone on with this Gen Z remodeling to try to address a more cognitive and questioning type soldier. But at the same time, it, it creates a, a command structure and a command and climate, especially in that senior level of the one star and above, which I think is indicative of this, that expects every one of its commanders just to obey and not question even when these orders are illegal. 
when we when this letter is put together and you are a big part of this, you are looking at that and you're calling now for accountability, which is quite unprecedented in the history of our military to have senior people and veterans internal and people in, in uniform saying enough is enough. This is wrong and we're going to hold you accountable, not just speaking out. This isn't just, as, as Flynn said, this isn't just another letter by general officers or intelligence people. This is a, a kind of a grit type letter that's saying, not only are you wrong, but by name, we're going to call out these particular leaders and there's more, and we're going to hold you accountable to the letter of the law and the, the process in the UCMJ. Talk about that because that's very significant in our history. Yeah, so um, it is very significant. And for those who may not be aware, you know, if you look at the names of the 231 signatories, there are some very junior individuals that are on there. You know, very, very that means they're that means they're very young, some of them in their in their early 20s. And that means that they would have only served for a couple of years, max in what a whatever branch of service that they were in. But they've put their names on this document. And so, you know, I look at individuals like this. And I think about these courageous individuals and the risks that they take. You know, they put their names on this document. And then we have senior individuals at the other end of both the age and the experience spectrum. And they're, for all intents and purposes, you know, they're kind of out to lunch when it comes to being able to perform the functions of their jobs. Now, I'll tell you someone that I met at Bards Fest. Um, and I was very impressed with the way that he speaks. And every time that I hear him speak since then, I'm always impressed with the with the words that he uses. And that's um, Cameron Hamilton, just the, the you know, obviously a man of faith, but also just the way that he words things. He always he just has like a a very clear way in which he communicates his message, um, which I, I, I find very, very impressive. And and again, I just use him as an example of when I think about this kind of core nucleus of people that put this declaration out. You know, those are the type of people that I think of. And these are the type of people that, again, if if these if the individuals that crossed, um, you know, the, the, the frozen river on Christmas night in 1776 to go fight the Hessians, if those individuals were transported forward in time, you know, two and a half centuries, they would find a brother in Cameron Hamilton you know, or in some of these other individuals, they would, they would recognize that same type of um, just this, what we think of when we think of the American ethos. And, you know, we are a nation that was born of war. And that can be a very positive thing. To fight can be very positive as long as it's framed in necessity and done as a last resort and, and done righteously, you know, the sword of righteousness. Um, but I will tell you, for, for those who may not be familiar, let me just take a moment and explain how this declaration came about and then what the rollout plan was. So now, now you uh, you interviewed Rob Green, and so I'm sure Rob mentioned his book, but, you know, I'm not Rob Green, so I can talk about his book and it it won't come across as arrogant in any way. Not that it would even if Rob Green spoke about his own book, but there's a reason why many military people kind of, I would say, gravitated to this book. Because this book, once it was written, it kind of became an artifact. And I've used that term to describe his book before, which means it has to be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. It exists. It, it has been published. It is very direct. It names names, which means, 
you have to read it and you either have to accept what it says or you have to refute it. But what you cannot do is just ignore it. Now, they've tried. Now, take the same man who wrote that book, who is a currently serving commander in the Navy and yet courageously put his name on the front of the book and did not shy away from it. And we all know the risks he took when he did that. And he knew the risks he took. So fast forward a couple of months. And Rob decides, we need to write an open letter to the American people. And once again, he prayerfully puts pen to paper. And we get this beautiful one-page document. Now, he puts some, some, uh, some words on paper that largely are the, 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 the final version of the document. But he, he shared it with a kind of a central core of a few others of us. And we helped kind of tweak the language. And uh, it was actually Ivan Raiklin who had the recommendation to condense it down to one page, which I, which I think was fantastic. That was a fantastic recommendation that, uh, that Ivan made. Anyway, we, we get to the version that now has gone out, kind of the final approved version. Um, and then, again, it was Rob's idea that this has got to go out on January 1st. We all know 2024 is going to be a crazy year, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons, maybe some of both. It's going to be a pivotal year. And so we're just going to hit the ground running. And so um, we kind of made a collective decision that, uh, that I would be the one to roll it out. And I'm, you know, was very proud to kind of, as we would say, walk point on that. So I did that in two ways. At 4 a.m. D.C. time on New Year's Day, when a lot of people were either sleeping or still celebrating, um, I sent an email to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and 17 other senior military officials that were largely the other Joint Chiefs or uh, Surgeons General or Inspectors General, but a total of 18 recipients. I attached the the uh, the document, the Declaration of Military Accountability, to the email. And in the email, I basically said, this is a pledge from us, the signatories, to the American people. This email is merely to inform you that this um, this declaration is 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 going out. You know, you've you violated your oath to the Constitution. You've broken the law. You violated the military's own regulations, and and we're pledging to the American people that we're no longer going to stand by it. I sent that email at exactly 4 a.m. DC time, and then uh, seven minutes later, I had a post on X or Twitter. Um, they basically said what I had just done with the email and then had a screenshot of the body of the document. And within a week that had been seen 4 million times. I mean, it was, it generated so much steam on January 1st that I would say within, I guess about 14 hours of that going out, we, uh, we actually threw together the idea of conducting a Twitter spaces event that night to capitalize on the initial momentum that it just built throughout that first day, January 1st, and um, we had a tremendous turnout. So the reception has been monumental because, and I would say it's for a couple of reasons. One, people resonate with the message. And I will tell you just as importantly, I think they resonate with the messenger because they see some people from the military and the American people just intuitively understand these guys, whoever they are, whoever Rob Green or Brad Miller or whomever is, but these guys seem to get it. And, and so our, both the message and the messenger resonate with them. But also the American people right now are looking for leadership or guidance. And, and I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know that Rob Green ever aspired to you know, lead a, a movement per se, 
but sometimes it's the humble guys with this indomitable courage that become the leaders when maybe other more boisterous people that don't have the commensurate courage to go along with that otherwise boisterous attitude. When those guys are nowhere to be found, it's sometimes the guys who might be reluctant and wanting to lead a movement, you know, like Rob probably is that still end up being the leaders because he's just got this, um, this just unquenchable desire to do the right thing. And that bleeds through when you read the document, you can't help but understand that when you read the document and then you understand kind of the rollout plan that put that document out there into the hands of the American public. Brad, there's no question that in this place, whether you like it or not, you become a major voice in this and you're giving America the perspective of leadership. And you and I talked about that in our chat groups. And I think it's significant because one thing that we're missing in our nation right now is strong leadership. That's indicative of the fact that we have every single flag officer. And for those that understand that, that means every single one star, two star, three star, four star, every general, every admiral that did not stand up against this COVID illegal order, which is, un it's stunning when you think about it. There's, we've lost the whole principle of moral courage. And Rob Green talks about that as well. In the letter, this letter is not just limited though, I think in, in view towards the military. Obviously the military is a critical component, but I, I think what we're, when we talk about this, you're giving hope back to a nation. And we've talked about this as well. And let's get your comments on this because lacking leadership and I mean substantially moral courage type leadership that's standing up to do the right thing, not based on politics, not based on a political party. This is an apolitical position based on the Constitution. When we get to that place, the letter says at the very in the last paragraph, we refuse to allow our nation to go quickly into the depth of de decadence and decay. And that's a statement from the military in that voice to we the people the people of this nation, which is as it should be, because this is a, the military should be of and for the people and dealing with this most difficult aspect, which you touched on earlier, which is enemies to domestic, not just enemies foreign. So talk a little bit about your mindset when you're looking at this, because this is an effort now that your voice is leading this. And as we step into this fight, it's very critical that we're leading in this movement, not just the reset of the military, but we're trying to bring the military becomes an agent to reset the nation back to a foundation of the Republic by which our founding fathers had intended. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So that's, that's, um, those are great points. So when you, you know, there's this, uh, there are two extremely misguided beliefs that a lot of people out there who may not be very connected to the military, but sadly, in some cases you have people who are connected to the military that still, don't understand these two points. One is you surrender all your rights when you, you know, join the military. That is absolutely and categorically false. Okay, now there may be some limitations on some of your rights, sure, by joining the military. But if people believe that you surrender all of your constitutionally protected rights, that is just absolutely not true. And in fact, the Uniform Code of Military Justice does quite a bit. There's quite a bit that is actually codified to uh, protect the rights of military personnel to include individuals that are even accused of having committed, you know, some sort of wrongdoing, et cetera. Um, but there's, there's, there is that huge misconception that you surrender all rights, you become government property when you sign on the dotted line. No, absolutely false. The other is, and this is a, another extremely sinister um, and misguided, you know, wrong perception. And that is that 
uh, you must follow all orders in the military now. So let's let's dispel this this myth and then let's get back to what you were saying. So is the military an institution of good order and discipline? Yes. To maintain good order and discipline, must you follow orders? Yes. Must you follow orders that you do not like? Yes. Must you follow orders that you perhaps find unsound? Yes, potentially. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you, where time and conditions permit, go to the issuing authority of that order that you find unsound and discuss with your commander, you know, why you find it unsound, et cetera. And, and potentially he could modify or even rescind the order. But if that order stands, just because you find it unsound is not grounds alone for you to disobey it. I mean, you know, you mentioned World War II earlier. I mean, imagine if we had, imagine if we had thousands of young troops who just stood up and said, I am not going to uh, obey this order to cross the channel on D-Day. You know, well, I mean, it, it doesn't work like that. But here's the one enormously significant caveat to everything I just said. When an order, when you believe that an order is unlawful or there's some sort of, you know, prima facie evidence that it, it may be unlawful, then not only are you not obligated to follow it, you are actually obligated and have a duty to disobey that order. And the military is actually very good about teaching this. So this should not be some sort of, you know, hidden or, or, or esoteric idea out there. No, the military actually teaches this to quite junior troops and certainly to its to its young officers. So you have a duty obligation to disobey unlawful orders. So what do you do when you receive an unlawful order? You approach your supervisor, commander, whomever issued the order, and you inform them that, hey, this at least looks on the surface to be unlawful. Did I misunderstand? Is there something that needs to be clarified to me? Maybe I'm the problem, you know? But what happens if the issuing authority can't clarify or won't clarify, but also won't rescind the order? Then you go to the next higher supervisor. Well, what happens when they're all in on it? What happens when you can't keep going to a higher authority because they're all in on the unlawful order? What happened? You know, you can't go to the secretary of defense if he's also in on it. Well, then this is the situation that we find ourselves in where we decide now we've got to appeal to the people. We've got to appeal to the people and the people know there are enough people out there that know that our military is extremely misguided. And though our the document, the Declaration of Military Accountability, is very narrowly focused, it focuses exclusively on the unlawful mandate because it was so egregious and it was so um, unequivocally unlawful. And there's so much evidence. But that doesn't mean that we are naive to other problems in the military. It's just that even if somehow those other problems in isolation were to get solved, if this one doesn't get solved, the military will not become healthy because this one is so egregious. Now, the reality is all these issues are related. So as you solve this one, you'll solve some of the others because, um, you know, you get rid of some of these people that are running the military into the ground. But speaking to the institution and the importance of the institution vis-a-vis -vis the American public and kind of our nation as a whole, when let's take a historical look for a moment. Our so we, the Declaration of Independence, of course, dates back to July 4th, 1776. But of course, we had already been at war for a year before Declaration, before the Declaration of Independence. You know, the original uh, skirmish at Lexington and Concord was April 19th, 1775. Just a couple of weeks later in June, you have 
George Washington chosen as the commander of what's going to become the Continental Army. So all of that is happening a year prior to the Declaration of Independence. You know, war had already started before independence was declared. And once copies of the Declaration of Independence made it into George Washington's hands, you know, he actually read it to his troops so they would know that independence had, had been formally declared. We are a nation born of war. And our military actually precedes, to some degree, you could say, the existence of the country if you date the existence of the country to the Declaration of Independence. So either the military, you know, to some degree precedes it, or at least was there from the very, very, very beginning. And that can be a very positive cultural pillar for the country to rely on. And it should be. So the military has always been viewed. That's one of the reasons why Americans have such such great faith in the military. That's why Americans look at a young 20-year-old soldier in the airport and they gravitate towards him. And an old veteran, you know, the 70-year-old veteran with the, you know, the 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 hat on, you know, of whatever unit or whatever ship he served on, you know, finds this this um this young service member who is 50 years younger and they immediately have a connection in an airport and they, they thank each other for their service. And it's a beautiful moment that happens all the time. And then, and then the greater society also looks at the military, as long as the military is operating within its properly designed framework as one of these, um, these major pillars that keeps the fabric of our society together. So if you are going to weaken American society, you have to attack the military. You have to knock out that pillar. And that is exactly what we are seeing. Now, the good news is the institution itself still has a lot of positive things about it. What we got to get rid of are these, um, these, these, these people that are running it into the ground, these people that are in the Pentagon, you know, like I said before, wearing a costume, you know, kind of LARPing around, pretending to, uh, to run an organization. Um, when they are actually, you know, destroying it from within. You mentioned um, Lexington and Concord. I just find these these dates interesting. April nineteenth, and that's within the window of what I, I've also, I've said on the show that I think we're kind of in that period, the seventeen seventy five period, historically. It's also interesting to note that January tenth, seventeen seventy six, whom holds the title and kind of unofficially the father of the American Revolution was Thomas Paine's common sense that was issued. And there's a there's a real important parallel there because this document is really burdened with, appropriately, the idea of common sense. It's accountability. Accountability at the core of our nation, which is something woke culture strips from us. And when we start to reset that pinnacle piece in the military and we get back to accountability, that ripple effect is far beyond the military's limits. It's, it gets back into the culture. It gets back to reestablishing the value, as, as you've already stated, of soldiers living in a place where the Constitution and their role is tied to the foundations of this nation. I think this is one of those things that, that this letter strikes at and is, you just get your comments, is as this moves forward to hold accountability, how you see that expanding out beyond the limits of, the, of just the military lane. You know, accountability is an interesting an interesting word because 
if you think about just, you know, being held to account or like your bank account or just the word count, there's kind of this, this notion of quantification or something quantifiable there where you, you either do or you don't measure up or, or whatever you are presenting is found to be deficient. And that correctly describes exactly what is, what is going on here. So, um, when Rob wrote that document and you're kind of reading his language, when he says what we, the greater military community want to do. And I kind of consider myself to be in that greater military community because I'm, you know, recently resigned and I was in for a long time, you know, et cetera. Um, we are trying to show the American public and members of other sectors or institutions of society that we can kind of put our own house in order. And we don't, we know we're not the only show in town. We know that there are other parallel efforts going on in other sectors of society. And we hope that they also can be successful, but that we might be able to serve as a model of how we can kind of put our own house in order. But here's the other thing. One of the reasons that we need to appeal to the people is because we need the people to help us. And one thing that is specifically addressed in that document is the fact that there are individuals in our community that are either taking off the uniform right now, or they have just taken off the uniform and they are running for elected office. And this is something that is very near and dear to their hearts, not just the military, but this specific issue. And I, and, and this, this is a very important point. This document is completely apolitical and it is totally nonpartisan because it's grounded specifically in the Constitution, the law, and military regulations. But let's think about it this way. Let's think about individuals who are running for office. You know, some people would say the most important thing when you're going to run for some sort of, you know, federal office position is your oath to the Constitution. Let's look at individuals who just went through an extremely significant constitutional loyalty test and they passed when nearly all others failed. Nearly all others that were in the military, which means it's already a special subset of the population and, and virtually all of them failed, or at least you know an overwhelming majority of them failed. Look at the few that went through this kind of constitutional crucible, if you will, and came out with their oath and their integrity intact. And now those individuals are running for office. There are many people in this nation, and I consider myself one of them, who have become kind of jaded as to the efficacy of our political systems. And I understand why people feel that way. But if there's one thing that gives me hope and heart towards that is some of these individuals that again, and I'm gonna you know use that term again, made it through this constitutional crucible, you know, and did so valiantly, valiantly, and now are running for office. So those are the types of individuals that also kind of help when it comes to the accountability that we're we're looking for. I just give that as you know one example. The other thing that I just want to mention is, and this is this is a very very bold. Okay, there are people who are using words they don't understand. I mean, you got a lot of trolls out there that have a, you know, middle school level analytical capabilities when it comes to uh, understanding civics, obviously. But you get people saying that we wrote a seditious document. That's just completely ludicrous because if you read the document, 
it is very clear what we are communicating and what we are not communicating. It's very, very clear. You know, we are grounded in, in the Constitution, no calls for violence or anything. But what I will say is, yes, it was very bold. I think when people start using words like seditious or whatever, they don't know what they're talking about. What they mean to say is, yes, the document is bold. And that is true. The document is bold. And yes, it says we will seek to hold you accountable. And that includes potential courts martial. But people have to understand, yeah, that sounds scary, like court martial. That sounds like a scary term. All we're saying is the law needs to be followed. And if laws have been broken, then people need to be held accountable. And we mean that completely legally. All we're asking, all we're saying is, hey, listen, the Constitution laws and military regulations are in place. They're in place for a reason. They would work if allowed to work. They need to be made to work. That's all that we're saying. But was the document bold? Yes, it was. Does the document name names? Yes, it does. But if people are going to criticize, if people, oh, my, oh, I got my dogs barking. But if if people are going to criticize us for that, they need to realize that we put our names on the document too. If we're going to talk about bold moves, let's talk about that as well. I agree with you 100%. Let's talk about a process, Brad. I mean, I think when people look at this from the outside, I think one of the questions they want to know is, how can this actually happen? There's a lot of discussions that have happened in our group in the process of UCMJ, but I think people are really interested and would want to know in an assurance of, can this actually be executed? Can this happen within the military? Or is this just a letter that's just talking into the air? Yeah, so we do not want this to be reduced to just another letter with no teeth behind it. So that's true. And I think that's actually a valid concern. So I appreciate when people ask the question because it means that a lot of times people who ask that, some of them are saying it because they're already dismissing it, but some people are asking because they actually care and they want to help. So there are two things that I would say to that. One, these steps are simple. They are not easy. You know, those are those are two very separate things. We know that this is not going to be easy. We know this may be arduous, but we also know that 2024 is going to be a critical year. And we it's also an election year. And while I said this is completely apolitical and nonpartisan, we know that there are going to be a lot of discussions and themes that are going to emerge as part of the discussions that always take place in a in an election year. And certainly the state of the military is also going to be one of those themes that has to be discussed. And I firmly believe that this one page declaration, this one page open letter is going to influence discussions that are going to take place, you know, and, and that's going to be on both sides of the aisle. And I think that that is very positive and a huge part of strategy is timing. And I think that and Rob says this, I mean, he constantly reminds us of this, you know, in the chat, you know, it's God's timing, you know, it's God's timing. But I think that, I think that helps us. Now, here's the other thing. When we live in a republic, and we kind of talked about this before, when you live in a republic, there are a lot of constitutionally, constitutionally protected rights that you enjoy, but there are also a lot of responsibilities that reside on the shoulder of citizens that live in a republic. You, you got to be informed. You got to be active. You got to be engaged if you're a citizen that lives in a republic. And this is another reason why we are appealing to the people, because 
I don't think we're being hyperbolic when we say, you know, our our country is suffering and people are looking for leaders. And there are some of our institutions that appear to be in tatters. But we can still turn this thing around. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easier than it's going to be super quick, but we can still turn this thing around. But as Rob constantly reminds us, you know, we're we are looking to try and um, fall in line with the will of God. And, you know, it's kind of like, for me, what would be a great, what would be a great way for me to start my day? You know, wake up, you know, start with prayer, you know, read some scriptures, go work out and then do whatever I got to do that day and try to be in line with what I should be doing, you know, in line with God with whatever I'm going to do for that day. So if you just kind of extrapolate that out and what we're trying to do to try and just help others join with us in the country and just kind of extrapolate that out to the country as a whole, I think that's kind of what we, that's what we got to do moving forward. I think it's excellent. Great words right there. Brad, there's an interesting concept here that when we talk about the fact that this letter is apolitical and you get to the root of that, and resetting the military back to a constitutional basis, which means it goes back to as it's intended to be as a force of and by the by, of and by the people, for the people, protecting the nation for its nation's interests. We now get into the question of what that means in terms of a positioning for the military, which is a very strong voice in participating in these wars, which quite frankly, we are executing wars now by executive order and proxy. So I'm curious your thought on this idea that if this is really, if we're really, really resetting this and we're resetting this with command structures that are now going back to and focused on the constitution, there seems to be a legitimate argument that the military can literally step in and say, we're not participating in anything not constitutional and we are of the people. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that this would, I think what we need is you know, the institution is good. We got to get rid of some very corrupt individuals, but there's also, um, we have to reprioritize the way in which our military is, is employed and deployed. You know, that's got to be reprioritized. And we also have to look at the way in which we conduct our professional education at certain benchmarks along these, uh, along the path of both officer and enlisted careers. But to do what you're saying, because I, I completely agree with you, what it's going to require is those those senior officials up there at kind of the three star, four star level that really interact with our um, our civilian leaders. And we all know that the military answers to to civilian leaders. I mean, you, you know, again, you want to draw the historical links. And again, you've got a you've got a uh, an informed listenership. So they probably know all this. But. This goes all the way back to George Washington and why they called him the American Cincinnatus. You know, he finishes the war. He wins against the British Empire, right? Most powerful empire that the world had probably seen up to that point. And then he resigns his commission. You know, he lays down the sword, as it were. You know, the American Cincinnatus. It's not till years later that he's kind of pulled out of retirement and, uh, and asked to preside over the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. And then later, of course, becomes the... Uh, the first president in uh, 1789. But that, that is the legacy of our military. That's the legacy. So 
you look at George Washington, who did not want to in any way usurp authority or use his military victory to ensure political power. That's our legacy. So it would be fantastic to have leaders who, while military leaders, who, while understanding the necessary and proper and essential deference to civilian authorities, but at the same time understand I am not going to obey orders, directives, or any other type of, you know, guidance, direct or indirect, that that pushes me to do something that lies outside of the Constitution. I will resist said order, and if necessary, I will resign. But it, it, it just seems few and far between that we have leaders that are that are willing to take that um, that step. And so part of our realignment of priorities and part of our kind of restructuring and um, and getting back to our history, getting back to our founding, part of which means being framed around godly principles should help ensure that as kind of the new generation of leaders continue to press forward, something that is also mentioned in the declaration. You know, those that continue to fight from within the ranks as they move up the ranks they will not choose careerist decisions. They will not choose placing reputation or money or specific assignments or post-career positions ahead of what they know to be doing that is right. So, Bratton, kind of the last question, then we'll, we'll move to prayer. But I, what is, would be your message right now to your fellow commanders and even to the soldiers in the military, I mean, you you have you've obviously come up to the military. You 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 have all of the credentials that we would look for to be a great commander, and you're living those out. But you're living those out now as a as a commander outside and not in uniform anymore. But what would you be saying to those within that have the opportunity to affect change and to do the right thing in this critical hour? It's not too late to do the right thing. You know, I I, I might I was talking to somebody on the phone yesterday, and it might have been Rob. Um, it was somebody in our group, but I, but I said, you know, the, the best time, the best time to wake up and do the right thing was two years ago, but the next best time is right now, you know? So, um, this is, this is a significant point in our nation's history. And it's a significant point in the history of our military. That is true. But we all have significant decisions throughout our lives. And we don't always make the best decision. We're all human. So if you make a bad decision, if you're on the wrong side, there's there's always time to try and, and do better. There's always there's always time to repent. And I mean that in terms of to God, but then also just trying to restore what you've done vis-a-vis your fellow man. So I would, and, and this would take a tremendous amount of courage. So I would be the first one to embrace someone who came out and said, I think we got this wrong. We were on the wrong side for the past two, two and a half years, myself included. I'm a colonel. I'm a lieutenant colonel. I'm a captain, whatever. I was part of this. I got this wrong. I personally ruined people's careers. And, and, I, and I didn't quite understand that till now. I'm late to the party, but at least I'm here. 
I would be the first one to kind of extend my hand and thank that person because for some of these people, maybe not those at the very, very top, but some of these people kind of in these middle ranks, I know what happened. They didn't mean to do something unlawful. I know what happened. They started going down a path they thought was lawful. They kept going down that path. More information came out, and then they realized, well, maybe it wasn't law uh, lawful. It's kind of legally dubious. It's kind of a gray area. They kept going down the path, and then they got to the point where they realized, you know what, this may be unlawful. But they kept going because everyone else around them was also going down that path. And so I understand that it would take tremendous courage for them now to depart from the group that they have decided to side with and basically defect, and that's almost the proper word for it, to our side. That would take a tremendous amount of courage, but I want them to do that. I want them to do that. I want them to turn from what they may have participated in um, to a great or small extent and embrace the truth. And if they did, hey, listen, we're all human. You know, I'm, I have never said that I was a great military officer that got every single decision right in my career. No, I think I was a good officer. I think I had a good career. And I'm most proud of the way that it ended because I think I was on the right side of that. But we, we all make mistakes. We're all human. Um, I would just urge them to just listen. You can still embrace truth. You can still come to the right side doesn't necessarily always matter, you know, what you've done in the past. Um, and I would also say we still need people, even in this seemingly late hour, that can still turn this thing around. And courage can also be contagious. You know, cowardice is certainly contagious. Courage can also be contagious. Not everybody's going to be kind of that Rob Green top tier of courage. You know what? But that second tier or even that third tier of courage is also very useful and can be helpful even now. It's well said. It's absolutely well said. It's just a time that people have to make a decision if they're going to be remembered for what they didn't do and standing on the side or what they did do and the sacrifices they made to save this nation. And you're one of those absolutely right at the point there that has made that decision to follow your oath within uniform or out of uniform, it's out of uniform, but you're obeying your oath to save the nation. And that's one thing that this nation will always owe a debt to you for. And that's amazing. It's wonderful. You have a well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, this is, we just don't, you and I both know that if we had had, you have Rob Green, who's fighting from within, you are being forced out. But if we had had, you know, every battalion commander in the army going, no, this isn't going to happen. It would have stopped. Even yes, it would have. Right? I mean, it just wouldn't have been a question. Yeah. Yes, it would have stopped. And I am very hard on my peers because of that, because I've said this all along. If a certain percentage, and it doesn't even have to have been a majority, but if a sizable minority of us kind of at that battalion commander level or that, that 05, 06 command level, we could have stopped this in its tracks. And collectively, we didn't because not enough, you know, um, not enough stood up against it. One thing you don't know, and I just want to kind of give you this background and why an interview like this, I think I'm going to speak for Bars Nation, is so rewarding, is that during the peak of COVID and the this push to force this injection, the jobs that were lost, the families that were divided, the friendships that were broken is just enormous. And it was a lot of what's 
really fuse the deep relationship that's in within Bards Nation. But there was one question that I would always get, which is where is our military? Where is enemies domestic? And it's a question that was very, it's been very difficult to answer. We, we're seeing why now. We're seeing the, the unfortunate loss of moral courage. But for you to be here tonight as a, a, really an example of somebody who was forced out but never lost his way, continued to that march forward, held to his oath, is still holding to his oath, is putting yourself out there. My thanks is to you for our nation and for this nation, a bars nation. You've, you're inspiring people, Brad. And I, and I need well, you to hear you that, so right? I need you to hear that. Um, I appreciate that. I really do. It's, it's, it's an important hour to have this sort of leadership, and it's, it's tremendous, and it's, it's really exciting because I, I'm with you. I think we can turn this military around. And I think when it does, it will be a completely different military. It's not going to be at the yoke of, of political foolishness. It's going to go back to being the rock of a nation that upholds the Constitution and says, this is how we fight. These are the wars that we will execute. And this is how we also protect domestically that this will never happen again. That would be the big win down the way, right? I agree with you. Fantastically well said. We, um, I know you have a Substack. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Bradmiller10.substack.com. Okay. And I'm just saying this to Bars Nation. You need to sign up for this. Brad's got great articles. He's, he's obviously an eloquent speaker. He's extremely well-educated and well-read on this topic and on all topics of American history and military history. And he's a thinker, and we need that. So you're listening to one of the great new generals of our era. And it doesn't matter what his rank was coming in. I'm just speaking out to Bars Nation right now. You're listening to one of the great new generals of our era. This is what we need. This is who will lead this nation. So follow what he has to say because it's an important time. Brad, we always close with a prayer. And if it's okay, I'll do a prayer. Yes, sir. Father, God, I just want to thank you for Brad Miller. This is a man who has provided an ethical line, a moral courage that a nation is in much need of in this hour a person who is understanding the value of the word, understanding the value of prayer, understanding the value of good counsel, and a man who's now stepping out and continuing his fight to reset a nation, not limited by a uniform, but rather driven by his heart and his passion for a country, a nation, and for God. So Father, just ask that you continue to bless him and guide him and protect him, continue to raise his voice up to new levels, continue to let his voice inspire the many to come to the line and now to awaken and let his voice, and we pray deeply that his voice will resonate deep within our military to awaken and to stir that moral courage that is so needed right in this hour of fellow battalion commanders, of fellow line commanders, captains, lieutenants, specialists, corporals, sergeants, master sergeants, first sergeants, sergeant majors, to now step in and take that position to completely understand the importance now of moral courage. This is an hour to reset our military and with it reset our nation back to the roots of the Constitution, which ultimately, Father, take us to the foot of the throne. So we ask for a continued blessing for all that Brad does, a protection and blessing for the 231 that he's leading and for a nation that needs his voice. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Awesome interview tonight. Great discussion. Very enlightening and uh, just really an honor to know you and to be part of this with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. And um, there's a lot of power in Bards Nation. So thank you so much, Scott. 
Absolutely. Well, God bless you, Brad. Have a great evening. We'll talk very soon. God bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Patriots, this, that was Brad Miller. He was obviously former battalion commander for 101st Airborne. Rockison's legacy, tremendous. At West Point graduate made the decision that he had to make, a very difficult one indeed, that was to literally have to make a decision as they were pushing him out of his career path to resign his commission and to continue the fight for America without his uniform. This is a man who's leading this fight now to reset the accountability in our military and in so doing is very conscious of the fact that by doing so, we we begin the reset of our nation. I'm asking you to pray for him constantly, and then we need to keep prayers up for Brad. He is truly an, an amazing man, and if you get to know him, um, intelligent and well-spoken and just a really a fantastic representation of what we need for the type of leadership that will take this nation back to where we need to. He is, um, all of these people in the, that are in this letter are obviously under scrutiny, which is not to be, there's no surprise for any of that. And that's, that's ex- just part of the game. But it's important that it's not seen as an exclusive group but rather that the 231 is just a group of people that have come together to speak to a nation, to say this is the time, this is the hour, and to lift up a nation, and in so doing, to drive people forward, to inspire them to speak the truth. And that begins in your most local community. While this fight is being waged at a a level of strategic, meaning the military and the senior leadership in the Pentagon, the Puzzle Palace that's up there, and the military-industrial complex that influences it, and, this, and 17 intelligence agencies that half the time corrupt it. Nonetheless, that while that fight is waging on, every single one of us has the opportunity and the, and the importance of stepping in at a local level to wage that war at the county and the city level to reclaim our sheriffs, our county clerks, our, our city councils, our, our county commissioners, and to get our counties back in line to where we're complying with accountability in the vote and accountability to the Constitution, which is the most important thing. And when we fight that fight as these bigger fights are going on, something we call in in the art of counterinsurgency fight in unconventional warfare, top down, bottom up, meaning this is a fight that's waging from top down to affect the nation. The fight that each one of us carries in the local level is bottom up. When you put those two in motion, there's nothing that can withstand that force. And that's how we take this nation back. As Brad pointed out, the structures of the, of the country are there. They have been infected and deeply corrupted. But we can change that by rooting out the corruption and ultimately getting the right people in, that the laws that are put in place, these excessive regulations, we strip away and we reset everything to a constitutional grounding in what we do. That's essentially a revolution of a kind. It's just not one with muskets. It's one with our intellect. It's one with our voice. It's one with influence. It's one with the word of God that leads us there that ultimately takes this nation back and returns it to the foot of the throne. So patriots, thank you for being here tonight. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil, never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time and this place for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land, expand the kingdom, subdue the enemy, mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow morning for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time, God bless, good night, thank you, and out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. Dive
into the deepest depth. Oh, I wanna feel something. Let me get back in my body. Place to be. 
Just to 